Hello, welcome to episode five of Sharpest Knives Podcast. This episode features my conversation with arts activist Sarah Porkalab. Sarah's great. She's a Seattle-based arts activist who specializes in theater work. You may have seen her first two plays of her Dragon Cycle trilogy centering around telling the story of her family through the perspective of her mother and grandmother. And earlier this summer, you may have seen her play Seventh and Jackson at Cafe Nordo here in Seattle. In our conversation, Sarah talks in depth about her writing process. She, um, we cover, we covered a lot. Um, <laughs> so looking forward, you have a few opportunities to see Sarah's work in the next year. So first, Cafe Nordo, we will be producing the world, world premiere of her new play, The Angel in the House, in February 2020. It is, in Sarah's words, a feminist Victorian revenge thriller. So those are, those are all things I like. And next, Arts West here in Seattle is producing a world premiere of her new play, Alex and Alex, in April 2020. Alex and Alex is a love story about two women and their journey with memory loss gonna ugly cry to that one last this winter sarah will be performing in baltimore center stages production of men on boats directed by jenny coons so if you're in baltimore or on the east coast be sure to check that out quick plug for her instagram you can follow her there at s porkalob so without further ado please enjoy my conversation with sarah porkalob where we cover the intersection of public policy social justice and art making how storytelling can be used to dismantle systemic racism and sarah's recommendations for filipino food in seattle let's go Hello, welcome to Sharpest Knives. My name is Maris Antolin, and I'm here today with Sarah Porkalob. She is an artist activist. Um, Sarah is an award-winning artist ac arts activist based in Seattle. She's featured in Seattle Magazine's Most Influential People of 2018, City Arts' 2017 Futures List, and served as Intamin Theater's 2017 co-curator. Co she is a co-founder of Deconstruct, an online journal of intersectional performance critique. Her first full-length play, Dragon Lady, is a recipient of three 2018 Gregory Awards for Outstanding Music and Sound Design, Outstanding Actress in a Musical, and Outstanding Musical Production. It has garnered a Seattle Times Footlight Award and a Broadway World Award for Best New Play. In 2019, American Repertory Theater in Boston will produce Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama, the first two plays in her family trilogy, The Dragon Cycle. And in July, Nordo's, Nordo's Culinarium will produce her new play, Seventh and Jackson, a historical fiction with music and immersive dining inspired by Seattle's International District. Sarah is a proud second-generation Filipinx American and owes all of her success to her family. Believe survivors, Black Lives Matter, queer, queer trans lives matter, vote. Sarah, welcome to my show. Thanks for having me, yes. Maris. <laughs> um, so is there anything that I just read in your bio or anything that is left out of your bio that is important to, to you? I think my bio is pretty comprehensive in terms of like my accolades or mm -hmm. how people 
uh, know me in Seattle. I mean, I love to eat. Yeah. (laughs) I love cats. Right. (laughs) I've started to really enjoy traveling, having done the most traveling in the last two years of my life than I I have in the entirety, almost 30 years of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, in the last four to five years, I'm moving towards uh, more of a political bent in my work in the intersection of like politics, local and national Mm -hmm. um, with my arts. So that's, that's a pretty clear picture, I guess, of who I am. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. But sometimes, I mean, you know, you can't always include, I like cats. I know. Like I'm very in love with my cat. Yeah. Uh, snowboarding. I've recently started snowboarding and I actually really, really enjoy it. It's so, fun. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. Well, great. Um, and so besides theater, you talked, touched on it a little bit just now, but mm-hmm. besides theater, what's the through line of all of your various projects? Yeah. So, um, currently I have my second contract working with the city, mm-hmm. um, and I'm working in a capacity with... Uh, a couple of partners, Office of Arts and Culture, Office of Civil Rights, the RSJI team, Racial Social Justice Initiative team, um, in order to create a curriculum that pairs racial equity training and an arts approach. Um, and I'd say that this is kind of like it's the second biggest project that I've had working with the city in this capacity, um, pairing my storytelling skills with my political agenda. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So that's going well. And that contract is through the end of this year slash beginning of next year. And I hope that it leads to more opportunities to intersect with the city Mm -hmm. um, and policy building at that level as well. Uh, My theater work is starting to kind of blow up on a national scale, which Mm -hmm. is very, very exciting. You know, the big goal, besides having all three of these plays produced and establishing some generational wealth for my family, um, Netflix or a serialized TV show um, adapted from the material for my plays, um, a family memoir, cookbook slash graphic novel would be very that would exciting. Be so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one day, I don't know, to have my name in a couple of chapters in books about American Western theater pedagogy. Love it. Yeah. I we'll love see. it. So with that, with the pedagogy element, are you working like in your capacity with the city? Are you helping put on workshops for organizations or you're just assisting in the curriculum building? A combination. It's okay. kind of threefold. So right now we're working on a big, big project that specifically um, draws from the experience of city employees who've mm-hmm. experienced racial discrimination and or sexual discrimination at the city level. Uh, we're taking those experiences um, and this has been research gathered over the last three to four years. Mm-hmm. And I'm compiling these individual stories into a script um, that will be shared with the city in a handful of public and free um, performances mm-hmm. that will hopefully then be transcribed into uh, a training toolkit. Okay. So we're connecting not only people who have actually experienced this type of discrimination to the narrative of the city. Mm -hmm. We're saying these stories that people have are a valuable training tool that we can teach you the definition of the words like white supremacy and intersectionality and classism and sexism. And you can check a box to say that you've taken the training, but what is that actually doing to help shift the culture, Mm -hmm. to shift the paradigm of racism? Right. Um, And the next steps, 
as far as like how this work will translate into either curriculum, workshops, and different interfacing with different parties um, will become clearer in the next two to three months. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. I love that, um, the idea of using, <clears throat> excuse me, of using the human stories to, um, as examples, because it, you're really like counting on people's empathy to be like, oh, I actually need to change my actions or I need to be thoughtful about the way I speak to people. Um, I think that's really valuable work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Next, can you tell me a little bit about your online journal Deconstruct? Is that an active project you're working you're still working on right now? Yeah, I'd say for about the the last year I've been pretty quiet. I haven't submitted any um, writings that have been authored by myself. Mm -hmm. I will review articles that are submitted by the different authors and kind of guest authors that we have, as well as um, push out or help establish any like network building. Mm -hmm. We've had some organizations and individuals over the last couple of years reach out to us asking us to come and review their work. Um, so I'm sometimes a liaison for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it started, gosh, two or three years ago deconstructed and mm -hmm. I was I put in quotes founding members meaning I was just one of the original members of the group sure um and there were a group of us some of us were performing artists others of us were students um some were professors and um literary experts in the area who got together and were like you know what we're really hungry for intersectional thorough constructive critique Mm -hmm. about the art that's being produced in the city from a community perspective rather than I'm going to put in quotes like a writing expert perspective. Sure, like a journalistic or like a major media outlets it, perspective. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, as some of us were performance artists, I think for a very, very long time and still to this day, I know people who think that being a performing artist, writing about the performing arts or reviewing or critiquing it is a conflict of interest. And I unfortunately think that that's just, um, it's not a sustainable way of thinking about the arts. It mm -hmm. also perpetuates a separation that I think is harmful to the growth of community within the arts. Mm -hmm. So that's really why we got to get, why we got to, uh, together. Mm -hmm. And also because we were like, we have busy schedules. <laughs> we can't review everything. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be very, very deliberate about what we choose to review and also understand that because we're writing things that are longer, you know, more than 300 to 500 words, we're looking at upwards of a thousand words per article. Mm -hmm. We wanted to allow ourselves the time to review, edit, and research. So in that way, we're not very traditional. Like we don't see a show opening night and then push it out in 48 hours. Sure. It's, it's very rare yeah. that we would do something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm still uh, a member of the group and I'm actually this year uh, planning on writing more over the summer. Nice. Yeah. Anything specific yet? Or I think this is really where I'm going to start integrating city policy research and history as that intersects with the work being produced here. Mm -hmm. I will always prioritize new work, original work made and sourced locally than I would any other work. Sure. I also think that a lot of people who are producing plays that have been done nationally have a lot of resources. Totally. Um, financially and otherwise mm -hmm. that will help support their endeavors. Whereas um, writing about a show that has fewer resources, I 
that's where my priorities lie. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm, I'm really hoping to do is connect, once again, the dramaturgy of the play or of the dance piece or of the um, museum exhibition mm-hmm. to what's happening locally in the city. Yeah. Have you heard of Seattle Dances? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Caitlin McCarthy? Have I you don't, met her before? She and I have never talked mm-hmm. in person, but I've... Uh, our group has reviewed her work, and I think that we've corresponded via email a couple of times. Yeah, I I recently interviewed her for this podcast. Oh, nice. But the things that you two are saying are very similar about, like, um, because she is a dancer, an artist making arts work, people have asked, like, well, should you be reviewing other people's work? And she's like, well aren't I the expert? Like, shouldn't I be doing this? Shouldn't, like, dancers and, like, performance artists have a unique perspective that other people might not? Right. Yeah. And that's how I like to think of it, is that it's a a, a privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a, it's a pro versus a con. And I think that anybody who's touting objectivity, (laughs) (laughs) um, Maybe they never really cared about the work in the first place. Yeah. I'm saying something that might be a little incendiary, but it, we are starting to realize now in this social, political, economic shifting that's happening that we can see nationally in the media, Insta, Twitter, et cetera, you know, in schools even, yeah. that words like objectivity and any type of normativity, they're all just code for oftentimes white supremacist constructs, which mm-hmm. oppress a large portion of people and um, hold a small portion of people above all the others. Totally. Because, I mean, like you're saying, objectivity is granted to only a certain number of people. Right. And very often they are large people, large, large people, (laughs) people who belong to large organizations that have a lot of power and have a lot of resources like money and Mm -hmm. space and the time to do those kinds of things. Right. Right. Power to the people. (laughs) (laughs) So who else is involved in Deconstruct with you? Yeah. Funnily, not funnily enough. I mean, it makes total sense. So two (laughs) of the other founding members, one of Mm -hmm. them, um, Laura Chrisman, she is a professor in the English department at UW. And then one of my peers, Steph Hankinson, um, I believe she's finished up her graduate program there and is, I think she's in her doctoral right now. But uh, the majority of people in the group are actually graduate students from UW. Oh, really? Yeah. We recently had um, a submission from a uh, young person, a teenage youth writer, who I believe also writes for Teen Ticks. So that's very exciting. We're hoping to open our doors to help mentor and either just provide a a web platform for these young writers to continue writing about art in the city. Mm -hmm. And we often have guest writers who will sometimes come in um, to write about either their area of expertise, whether that be trans rights and representation or specifically like classical opera on stage, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, hoping to grow. It's been slow, but steady at the same time. It's, it's been quite exciting for me to have read all of the pieces Mm -hmm. and just to see the different areas of expertise show up, um, in each article, but our model is also very different. We rarely have one person writing one piece. Typically, oh. it's a group of our writers going out to review a show. They have a feedback session, and then they all kind of co-author it with a lead hmm. who, like, steers the process. Yeah. So it's just really great to see a piece of I writing. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's a completely a, collaborative process. Exactly. Exactly. So 
Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, I could see how that would be really fun for a young person to be a part of that process too. Like what a unique opportunity to like meet other people who are writing about arts and learn from them and also probably teach them things too because young people are sharp. Yeah. And with it. Yep. You know, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. You know, I think that Teen Ticks, for example, is a, an example, I think, of a wonderful organization that's not only providing opportunities um, and services to these young people, mm -hmm. but they are providing these skill building workshops to them. Right. And reading uh, Teen Ticks reviews by these youth writers is just really exciting because they're succinct to the point, obviously, because of their age, they have a finger on the pulse of what's happening in terms of like pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, even sociopolitically, uh, they have a perspective on that. And it's just so refreshing to see. Mm -hmm. um, knowing so many older writers are wary either of writing in that way mm -hmm. or they don't care about writing in that way or they've never right. thought to write in that way. Right. It gives me a lot of hope for the next generation. Totally. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, moving a little bit more into um, your own personal theater work, um, your, your Dragon Cycle work is centered around telling the story of your family through three generations of women, you, your mom, and your grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, and even though my specific family experiences are different than yours, um, I had a lot of moments watching Dragon Mama that I identified with and I recognized in my own like relationships with my family. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you... When you were writing, did you know or understand that in writing about your family that people of different races, genders, social experiences would be able to connect with you? Yeah, I don't know if I knew that or understood it explicitly, but mm -hmm. I sure hoped that would be the case. Yeah. I think, you know, it was really my sophomore slash junior year of undergrad where I went through this very deliberate process of what I call humbling myself. <laughs> you know, I went straight to Cornish after I graduated from high school. I was mm -hmm. so eager to move out of my house and being in this private art school in the heart of the city with all these like like-minded and diverse individuals, you know, 19 years old, it created this, this ego, like almost overnight totally. where I yeah. was like, I know everything. <laughs> my, my parents don't know anything. Right. Uh, the only time I want to hang out with them is to tell them what I'm doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And yes. I was like 19, 20, 21. And, and then I had to drop out for a year because of money. And mm -hmm. at the time, it was the most devastating thing. So I had failed myself. I thought I had failed my family. But that year off was probably the best thing that ever could have happened to me. It helped center my objectives, artistic and personal. It helped provide me a sense of what real work looked and felt like mm -hmm. having to support myself through college. Um, and I also gained a new respect for my family and my parents and their sacrifices as well as their, um, their experience and their celebrations that they've had in their life. Uh, so when I started writing about my family, I really wanted to honor them. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to honor them, to document our history, and to answer some questions that I had about the whole family. You know, there was some, sure. some mystery there. 
And there was a part of me where, you know, I would sometimes talk with peers and they would be like, well, like, what's universal about your play? And I'd be like, I have no idea. And I'm not even <laughs> going to try to kid myself and tell you that this is what's universal. Mm-hmm. I could be like, it's universal because there's family and everybody's born of somebody unless you're born in a lab, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what yes. kind of tagline is that? It's just, right. like, just idiotic. <laughs> so I, I really was wary of making any types of assertions, either outwardly, as in talking about it, or even internally, being like, mm-hmm. this story is universal and you should keep doing it. Like, I deliberately taught my brain to not think that way, and I taught my heart not to feel that way. So what was left at the end of the day is I was just trying to document the truth um, in all of its forms, mm-hmm. in the sexy forms, in the scary forms, in the hurtful forms, in the like, am I doing the right thing type of forms. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hoped that people would connect to it. But I knew that if I tried to write something that would appeal to as many people as possible, I was going to be moving farther away from my family's unique experience. Mm-hmm. Then it would be a sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely want to write a sitcom one day. Right. right? But-, <laughs> but at that time in my life, I was like, just try to tell the truth and yeah. be humble. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what kind of what kind of research did you do? Like you interviewed family members, you like looked up public records. Yeah. You know, the inter- even the interviewing process, like I never thought to sit down with a recorder or a microphone. I never thought to do that because mm-hmm. in a way, whenever my family gets together, the things that we talk about, the majority of what we talk about is the past. Sure. And I thought that was the case for all families. But then when I started uh, dating my partner five years ago and hanging out with their side of the family, I was like, whoa, they talk about the past maybe 10% of the time, whereas mm-hmm. my family's 90% of the time. So all I had to do was show up and listen. Right. And then if there were some things where I was like, huh, I can't really pose this to the whole group because that might cause whatever. I'll just send a text message to my auntie tomorrow Mm -hmm. or I'll be sure to check in with my mom about her version of the story. Yeah. Or Sunday afternoon when I go visit my grandma and drop off, you know, a fresh fish from the market. I'll ask her about that thing. Yeah. But it it also wasn't like sly the way that I'm saying it right Right. now makes it sound kind of sly. Yeah. But, um. I would have to say that our family, our intuitive family dynamic helped serve my research purposes in a really Mm -hmm. like natural way. Yeah, that um, I would say as a third party outsider who does not know you personally or your (laughs) family, that comes across. Yay! um, (laughs) That like, because, so I've only seen Dragon Mama, Mm -hmm. which you were workshopping this summer I want to say I can't remember maybe earlier this fall yeah earlier Um, this fall fall. yeah Mm -hmm. at 18th and Union Mm -hmm. and the way that you um use body language to illustrate which person you are being um like everything you're saying about I just watched my family in their natural habitat that comes across (laughs) thank you in your performances thank you yeah I think This is also something I've become increasingly aware of in the last two years because I found myself 
teaching or being asked to teach workshops Mm -hmm. to um, people of varying ages and varying levels of experience in theater. Um, And a lot of the workshops that I choose to do revolve around solo performance. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to play multiple people at the same time? Totally. You know, and I think that the first year I was like, just create completely different characters. Like, they don't have to be based on anybody real. And Mm -hmm. then oftentimes what would happen is the majority of people would make choices that were not physically specific. And then, like, a small portion of people are like, oh, this is my wheelhouse. I can completely create these characters out of nothing. But then when I started creating these workshops and being like, okay, let's do two people that you know. Yeah. All of a sudden, the choices that people are making regarding technique, whether that be in their physical choices their mask their gestures their voice they became so much more specific and i was like well of course because you know them right you know i can't Mm -hmm. tell you how to play your mom because i don't know your mom right i can be like yeah your tactic is to scold them but how does your mom (laughs) scold versus how that person's mom scolds totally and we all have this wealth of information inside of us you know i think that as somebody who came from a very supportive family, that that's a privilege that I have in my work mm-hmm. is that they've always been supportive of my artistic endeavors. And as I started to share our family story, they became more and more open versus closed off. It could have gone that way. Yeah. Um, and they've just been really supportive of me. And I think that it's true that just because people are your family, it doesn't mean they always have your interests, mm-hmm. um, you know, in their heart or in their minds. And that oftentimes the family that we choose is the better family than the ones we were born into. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just important for me to acknowledge that, like, I've been able to write these family stories because I have the privilege of having a loving, caring, present family. Right. My next question was going to be about what advice you have for people when writing about their families. It sounds like, I mean, I still have that question for you. It sounds like you're very lucky to have people who want to be involved in your work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredible. Thank Um, you. So I recently uh, directed Susan Liu, mm -hmm. who's a performance artist in Seattle. She's Vietnamese American. And she was creating an autobiographical piece about her mother, whom she lost when she was 11 years old. Her mother went in for some routine cosmetic surgery. And due to an irresponsible doctor and some malpractice, she ended up dying. Gosh, that's so horrible. It was horrible. And so Susan was the youngest of her siblings. And her family, for many reasons, cultural and and social as well, they didn't talk about her mother's death. Mm. And so when Susan became an adult and got married and was thinking about having kids, all of this unreconciled, you know, emotion and trauma regarding her mother's death just came to the surface. Mm -hmm. And so I recently worked with her to create this story. And I'd say in terms of advice for people who are interested in writing about their family, one of the concerns that I always hear is like, I don't want to make fun of them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to serve up, you know, their voice or their gestures or their thoughts or feelings for laughter, like for laughs. And I was like, Well, the fact that you've acknowledged that already is a huge step. Mm -hmm. So just remember that. If you remember it every single day, that's an internal system of accountability. When you write things down on the paper and you go, am I doing this? Hand it off to people that you trust. That's an external form of accountability. Mm -hmm. That paired with consistent practice, mindfulness, as well as trusting yourself 
and knowing that you're not going to get it right the first time is a third form of accountability. So I found in my work that these three forms will sometimes shift in priority. I often mm-hmm. depend on the first one um, as in this internal sense of like mindfulness sure. first. Um, but I found that that really helps build a sense of trust and it also helps strengthens an individual's intuition mm-hmm. that gut feeling if you're like i know what i'm doing is wrong yeah. versus i know what i'm doing is not wrong and it's scary but it doesn't feel wrong so this is good maybe i should keep trying to do this right and i think as well i know that i'm moving away from I know that I'm moving away from a process filled with integrity and humility when I stop caring about why my characters do what they do. Yeah. When you can't connect with them. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky enough to, like, I haven't, I don't know if luck or if it's work, probably both. Mm -hmm. In my work about my family, I've never felt that way. Yeah. When I've tried to write other stuff that isn't related to my family, and I was like, I don't give a shit with those people. I'm like, oh, I should... (laughs) I should put this on the back burner. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you saw Dragon Mama. And many people out there have seen Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama. And so those plays hand in hand, you know, they show my mom and my grandmother and my aunts, and my uncles and my grandpa doing some things that today people would have a lot of shame about. Mm. Um, and when I write them down, I have no shame about that. Mm-hmm. I try to practice compassion and empathy for these people as they are on the page and in real life and to always consider that everybody has a reason for doing what they do, even if they can't articulate it. Sure. So I perhaps I have a responsibility to honor that 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 like paradox on the page. Mm-hmm. Um I know that I have a lot to learn, but I like to think that my parents and my family raised me with a certain moral and ethic compass, like ethical compass mm-hmm. that I'll know when I'm not like right. adhering to my major objectives and goals. Right. And just because, I mean, there are a lot of serious moments in Dragon Mama. There are a lot of really funny things. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny things about it weren't ever at the expense of your family. Never. They weren't ever at, like, it's, you're never making a joke in, like, in order to put someone down. Or you're never making a joke about someone who's already vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an important distinction to make, that you can still make work that has humor in it, mm-hmm. but be conscious about where the where the joke is yep and i think having people write their own stories can make a world of difference Mm -hmm. you writing your own story you've experienced the nuances of language and wit and teasing my family teases each other a lot right and it's i mean i think it's funny i the people i laugh (laughs) the hardest with are my family and it's mostly because we're like teasing each other or like acting out crazy mundane things Mm -hmm. but you know everybody in my family is a performer uh and of course i i would know how to write about them because i'm on the inside right and that's just something that like school didn't teach me it was always very much you know you're an outsider looking in Mm -hmm. and you can only get in if you do the right things i didn't Hmm. i wasn't i think and i think a lot of 
students and, and children aren't taught within our public education system to consider that our experiences are valid hmm. and that they're meaningful and can be impactful. Yeah. Is that an experience you had specifically going to school at Cornish that you you were an outsider trying to break into like the theater scene in Seattle or some other? Yeah, level? I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's unique to Cornish. Mm -hmm. I will say with confidence that I think a lot of secondary educational systems rely on a system of white supremacist constructs. Sure. And that can vary in terms of how visible that is, mm -hmm. you know, a Confederate flag in the cafeteria right. to how invisible it is. Right. The majority of the staff being able-bodied white men of a certain age and a certain um, educational experience. Mm -hmm. um, how many POC students are accepted in their freshman year versus how many actually graduate. Right. How many roles or plays are written by and or for people of color, queer people, trans people. Mm -hmm. um, do we read any plays that are bilingual, written by bilingual artists? So I wouldn't say that it's unique to Cornish, but rather right. the majority of American educational systems. Totally. Hmm. Yeah. Because you left school and you were saying you gained a lot of like street smarts or world knowledge mm -hmm. in that year, um, what was it like to go back to a setting as a, like a very different person mm -hmm. when you came back? Oh yeah. I, I was so much more confident. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was like, huh. Any critique that I receive in this school, I can take it or mm -hmm. I can leave it. Right. Yeah. That there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a beautiful line mm -hmm. between being like humble and then being, like, narcissistic. And also yeah. a fine line between being like, you know what? That constructive criticism is so helpful to me. I emotionally don't understand it right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe I will in two years. <laughs> yeah. Versus, you know what? That feedback that you gave me for the last five minutes revolves specifically around emotions. And I'm really trying to figure out how to specify my tactics. So can we talk about actions? Mm-hmm. Um, because I was confident and I was like, I know why I'm here. I also didn't take no <laughs> easily. I wouldn't say that mm -hmm. I fought it, but I was like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll figure a different way around yeah, it. Yeah, I'll figure yeah. a different way around it. And um, I think I became more outspoken. I stopped caring so much about what people thought of me. And I started caring more about what I thought about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I knew why I was there. I wasn't there for anybody else besides me and my family. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's impressive for such a young person to know. Um, and that you, I mean, all of what you're saying just sounds like you came back independently. Mm -hmm. like, you're like, great, I'm here. I'm doing this work for myself. Yep. Independently. And um, autonomy, like you knew that you had autonomy. You knew that you had choices about what what feedback to accept and what paths to take. Yeah. You know, and, and Dragon Baby will get into this because mm -hmm. Dragon Baby, the third in the Dragon Cycle, is actually a 10-person, two-act musical. And I love it. Yeah. That's so it's exciting. It's going to start, like, my senior year of college mm -hmm. at Cornish, writing my senior thesis, but it's going to go back in time all the way to, like, 1994. Okay. So just like Dragon Mama, it's going to span about 
25 years. Yeah. And like flip between times. Exactly. Yeah. And I can attribute to my return to Cornish this like strong sense of self to my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw Dragon Mama and you got to see my mom meet Tina, who would later become my other mom. Right. And though my parents are no longer together now, they were together for 14, 15 years. And Tina had a, a necessary and strong and impactful shape on my life. You know, when I was little, is as little as four or five years old and I would like eat the last cookie on the table that she had told me to save for my mom but I did it anyways Mm -hmm. she would sit me down and she would ask me why did you do that why she would always ask as a five-year-old from five to 18 why why did you do what you did did you consider how what you did was going to affect other people you need to understand that you're not the center of the universe. And I'm five being like, I don't know what any of this what means. Mean? Yeah. She doesn't like me. Right. You know, and then I'm 13 being like, oh, she just doesn't want me to have fun. You know, she doesn't really <laughs> care about me. She just wants to like limit how much fun I have because I don't know, she's jealous. And then I'm like yeah. 18 being like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. Right. It took until I was 20, 21 to be like, wow, 15 years of lectures and this is what she meant. Mm-hmm. And she only did that because she cared about me and she loved me. I'm getting emotional now. You know, yeah. she, you know, she cared about me and my mom didn't want to be my grandma. So she was very like hesitant to discipline me whenever mm. I would act out when I was little. And so she was very hands off, you know, she and I were like friends growing up. And I look back now and I just think what a healthy balance it was to have Tina in my life, right. to be the parent who not only helped me grow into a responsible adult, but also helped my mother heal from past trauma Mm -hmm. and was a wonderful co-parent. So yeah, I was able to realize that stuff at 20 because for 15 years of my life, I had this amazing (laughs) woman being like, why do you do what you do? Right. (laughs) Think about what you do. Think about the consequences. Be considerate. Be honest. Have integrity. Care about other people because you should and because you can. Mm -hmm. And uh, I see now how so much of that, that wisdom applies to for example, city policy and racial equity training. Right. You know, Be good because you should. Yeah. yeah. We, should, we should take care of one another because we can mm-hmm. and we should. Right. And we have to move outside of this how many hundreds of years of organizational transactional management into holistic and community-led and fed um, structures of shared power. Mm-hmm. So anyway. <laughs> talk about this forever yeah well that leads perfectly into oh, great. our next question i follow you on instagram yay um and among the food and the cat posts yes um you yes. you mention uh, i've seen you mention a few times running for seattle city council in yeah. a few years mm-hmm. um can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in local government and public policy work. Yeah. Um, it started back uh, in junior high, honestly. Okay. Um, as an only child, my parents, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I used to get in trouble for reading books on the way to school because <laughs> Tina would be like, if you have your nose in a book, you're not going to be able to pay attention if somebody comes along and snatches you. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just like, please just let me finish this Anne of Green Gables series. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, but I do. Because I wasn't only reading, you know, um, 
Lucy Maud Montgomery or, you know, Jane Austen. Um, but I have my uncle Ronald, who is like the father figure in my life, who, you know, from as early as nine years old would like hand off conspiracy theory books and witch books and like scientific nature books and governing body books. Mm -hmm. And I would be reading them because I didn't have anybody to play with. And I was like, I don't want to go outside. (laughs) Um, And so I just became very interested at a young age in in governing bodies. Mm -hmm. I think as well, growing up with the parents that I grew up with, maybe I had this sense early on that like, I knew my family wasn't traditional. Sure. And I knew that that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. So it made me, from a very young age, kind of question, in quotes, traditional methods of anything. Mm -hmm. Whether that be traditional methods of learning how to spell or traditional scientific methods or traditional, like, debate models, Mm after-school club stuff. I was always like, hmm, I'm wary. (laughs) (laughs) It's constantly suspicious. Constantly suspicious. So then 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. I was in um, seventh grade. I remember first period, we had an announcement that was like, we need a moment of silence. I could tell from my teacher that something intense had happened. And I was like, what does this mean? Where are my parents? I didn't have a cell phone back then. What's going on? And, you know, people in second period history, these boys were like joking about having to go off and like join the war. And I was like, this is way more serious than people think it is. And yet I have no idea what's happening. Fourth period comes around. I get a note from the office saying, hey, your parents are here to pick you up. Mm -hmm. My parents worked here in Seattle. I was in Bremerton, so that meant that they had to, like, hop on a ferry, which meant that they had been, like, let go of work from the day. Oh, okay. So they were very somber, got in the car, didn't say anything. We drove to get Chinese takeout, went back to our house. We had this big screen TV, which was, like, a big deal back then (laughs) in 2000, you know. (laughs) Anyway, so we turn on the news, and we watched – the news for the rest of the day and there like president bush's address was happening like when we got home and after a couple hours they like turned off the tv and they like turned to me and they were like things aren't going to be the same from now on out and i just remember thinking like what the heck yeah and they were like a lot of americans are afraid right now and i was like should we be right and they go no Oh my gosh, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. And they said, you know, it's something my uncle always told me too. He's like, you're always going to get information. Some of it real, some of it fake, some of it, you know, negotiable. But don't trust anything until you've triangulated your resources. Mm-hmm. And anytime you, your gut is like, this person is saying this out of fear, anger, or hate, know to like follow your own heart. So then after that, I just was like, well, here we go. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. And, uh, you know, my favorite class in high school was like AP political science. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, I didn't quite know that like my arts and my politics would intersect. I always thought that it was going to be like one or the other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's when it started. Yeah. Um, And then... You know, in 2012, when I began kind of my professional career here in Seattle, I started talking pretty openly and consistently via like social media platforms, you know, at the time about intersectionality and feminism and kind of like calling out white theater practices. Um, 
and I became known as like somebody who had like a lot of opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And then it was really when I started writing like critique in 2015 that people were like, wait a minute, she can articulate these things and that makes a huge difference in how we perceive her. Yeah. Um, And then I actually had a friend Hysam Gwaley, who ran for city council a couple years back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was really inspiring. Um, and then with what's been happening, you know, nationally since 2016 with President Trump, uh, I've been pretty fired up about staying involved in local politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean... I can see where the connection is for you because you because you're from here mm-hmm. and you've spent so much time. Um, your whole family's like essentially from here. Yeah, or Pacific has, Northwest has been for a while. Mm-hmm. And why like why wouldn't you work to like make their lives better and make like your future families' lives better when you've been here? Yeah, um, and I think that that's a privilege. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I've definitely met some people who are like, we're from here and we want to keep things the same in terms of like an ownership perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I don't own anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to own anything, but rather yeah. trying to mobilize my individual power and platform to create awareness, which moves into policymaking, which hopefully moves into shared power. Mm-hmm. That's... That's really the goal. And, you know, I think, like, if I were just to move to a completely different city, I would want to research and understand the local politics, but I don't know if I would feel comfortable having any say in how, like, the city should be run. Sure. And I think that that's just due to, like, lack of experience. And I also don't want to pretend to be an expert. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I'm definitely not an expert by Seattle standards, but I care about the people here. Right. I really deeply do. And, you know, if I ran, it would be for... uh, um, district seven, which is my district, of course, Pioneer mm-hmm. Square to Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Seattle's a really wonderful place. And nationally, we're known as being this liberal progressive bubble, but we have so much work to do. Yes. <laughs> we have so much work to do. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, it feels good to live in a city that is like, we care about these things. And to know that I can be an individual who can push for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is something to be said about, like, oh, Seattle's such a bubble. Aren't we so lucky that we live in such a progressive bubble? Exactly. And it becomes <clears throat> complacency, and it becomes stagnant if if the same people are getting the same jobs over and over and in charge of the legislation and, like, in charge of even things like um, – the training at at Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Mm -hmm. even that kind of thing. Like every, everyone in the city should be trying to move us forward Yep, because, um, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, you know, so many people are like, well, what's your platform be? And I was like, well, I got four (laughs) years. But I, I, I mean, I, for me, the priorities of the city or at least the things that I would prioritize, being in Pioneer Square and living um, in a neighborhood that has a dense, houseless population, mm-hmm. um, has opened my eyes in a way where I'm like, how did you not see that and know that sooner? 
And then I'm like, well, the more you berate yourself for not knowing it is like time away. You actually Mm -hmm. are taking from learning about it and doing something about it. And then public transportation, you know, just infrastructure growth and sustainability in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, Rent control. I'm all about rent control. It's not only, it can't only be about affordable housing. That in itself is code for so many other things. Rent control. And we have aggressive taxes here. We do. And for a city that's so wealthy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Come on, people. Right. (laughs) So that's like, you know, the the top bullets of my four years out (laughs) campaign (laughs) run. (laughs) But, um, you know, and all of that intersects with racial gender equity Mm -hmm. all types of equity Mm -hmm. um it has to be built from that in order for it to be truly intersectional and progressive totally Mm -hmm. you have to change it from the inside definitely yeah well great (laughs) um i want to move backward a little yeah and talk more about um what you're going to be doing with american repertory theater (laughs) <laughs> okay how did, you, how did you connect with them yeah because they i'll let you speak yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> so for many many years as in 2015 was four years wow sarah many i'm 100 <laughs> many years old years <laughs> so when i started performing dragon lady once upon a time it was eight minutes then it was 30 minutes then it was an hour long so many people were like you should take it on a fringe circuit you should tour it nationally Mm -hmm. and i was like i love that idea and i don't have time nor the resources to invest in it in a way that would be beneficial to me Mm -hmm. i would leave being potentially in debt and out of work coming back to the city right so i was like well i'm just gonna allow myself the time to really develop it not in a leisurely manner but hopefully in an accountable way because mm-hmm. the goal was always, it was always to have my grandmother involved, but I didn't really bring her into it until 2017. Okay. You know, two, three years into the development of the piece. So there is an individual by the name of Emma, and she was here in Seattle a couple of years back working at Seattle Repertory Theater, and she had heard about Dragon Lady. So then she got this gig at ART as a producer, mm-hmm. and part of her job, um, I think... She has moved up, but I still think she does this outreach, like networking portion of the work, um, is to bring in national artists to perform in Oberon, which is the sister space to American Repertory Theater. Oh, mm-hmm. Like it's still produced by American Rep, but it's known as a different space and it has more of a nightclub feel to it. The stuff that's put on there is more immersive. Mm. And she was like... Well, I've been following your work for the last couple of years. And then when I finally shot videos of it for the 2017 production at Cafe Nordo, she was like, I think it would really fit in this space. So she was really the whole reason I went over there. Yeah. You know, I think that that's one individual can truly make a difference in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that shopping out my work to theaters, it hadn't proved fruitful. My plays on paper do not convey what my plays are in an actual space. Yeah. People are like, how can, can you, see that. yeah. How do you play 30 characters with no costumes? <laughs> right. How is it that you can have half a page and you're talking about emotional depth when there's 12 lines? What they fail to realize is that like, I'm kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, like, they haven't seen you. Yeah, they they yeah. haven't seen me. So that's yeah. how I went over to American rep. Um, last year, and I did a short engagement of Dragon Lady, mm-hmm. four performances. Did your grandma go with you? She did. <laughs> That's yeah. so fun. Yeah. 
And uh, the band came. I have a three-man band. Um, They're a band unto themselves, and they're amazing. Um, ART fell in love, sold out shows, a high percentage of single-ticket buyers who had never been to ART shows before but had heard about the work. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was like... I don't know anybody there. Is anybody going to come see my show, let alone, like, are people of color going to come see my show? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I would look out there, and it was an incredibly diverse crowd across, like, race and age especially, Mm. which made me so, so happy. You know, families, mothers, daughters would come see the show, and people would come, you know, people – in the four-day run, people came (laughs) twice, which was really kind of cool. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, yeah. So then they fell in love with it. And then they were like, do you have other stuff? And I was like, do I have other stuff? <laughs> and so I'm going back. I fly out this Friday and I'm performing for three weeks, mm-hmm. Dragon Lady and Dragon Mama. Mm-hmm. And they've just commissioned me to write and finalize Dragon Baby. Amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That's it's very so exciting. exciting. Yeah. Press release going out soon, but I can talk about it. So oh, okay, great. Maybe you don't have to edit this out or anything. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, they've shown um, a really caring, consistent, and like transparent investment in me mm-hmm. and my work. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. I've already told my my sister lives in Boston, and I've already been like, go to this. <laughs> yeah, She's into theater. She does theater costuming. Oh, fantastic. And so, yeah, she's like, oh, I'm there. Yes. So you have one person. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And so many people are great because they are like, yeah, I know people in Boston, and my friends are taking a train up from New York. And then everybody that I connected with, you know, the, the week that I was there, mm-hmm. you know, we've stayed in contact. So not only am I performing, but I'll be leading a series of workshops with different orgs, you know, one at Boston University, one with a couple of graph, uh, grassroots API community groups, mm-hmm. um, the Asian Film Festival Committee there, Harvard artists, da 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 so it feels really good to interface with people, not only as a performer, but really like who I am as an artist activist. Yes. So yeah, yeah, and build a whole other community on a whole other coast. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't know that it was going to be like this. <laughs> I was really trepidatious. I was nervous, yeah. you know. And in some ways, I was still holding on a couple years you know, a year and a half ago to like vestiges of like insecurity. Like, Mm -hmm. is my work good because it's my friends and people who know me? What's going to happen where I'm a complete stranger? My work's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. That obviously worked out just fine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But again, I think it's, it's that, that humble, humble Sarah Porkolov that's always like, you know, go into it and do it for the work, not for the accolades or the affirmation. Do it for the work. Yeah. So I'm thankful for that voice. Yeah. So when are, can you tell me the dates of your run? Yeah. So Dragon Lady uh, runs for one week, Wednesday through Sunday, starting March 20th. Mm-hmm. Then the second week of the run, Wednesday through Sunday, is Dragon Mama. Okay. And then the third week of the run, which goes all the way up until April 7th, is Dragon Lady one night, Dragon Mama the next night. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it'll be alternating. alternating. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it'll be my first time performing the two together. Yeah. So (laughs) I expect to be an emotional mess. Yeah. (laughs) 
And your grandma oh. is traveling yeah. to be in those with you? Yeah, she'll be in uh She'll be in the first week of performances, mm-hmm. then the second week she has off because she's not in Dragon Mama, right. and then the third week she'll be on. Yeah. How is your grandma handling her success? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this. She'll Instagram me and be like, oh, why didn't I get invited to that Dragon Lady <laughs> concert? And I'm like... <laughs> Because it wasn't only Dragon Lady, Grandma. It was a benefit. Con- well, I am the real Dragon Lady. I have to be there. And then she doesn't text me for two days because she's mad. Oh, no. You know? Yeah. Or she'll she'll always send me these warnings. She'll always be like, be wary. Be careful. Cautious of showbiz. You don't want to be used for your talents. <laughs> and then she'll be like, how much are they paying you? How much yeah. are they paying me? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, that's one thing that I love that I love about her. She is this healthy caution i mean i think the results of having grown up as an immigrant woman in america yeah uh as a survival method really but um i like to think that it has improved her quality of life Mm -hmm. she's become more open and excited about going out and socializing with strangers Mm -hmm. she is just like my mom at their hearts they're social people yeah but because of their circumstances, bridging the social heart of theirs with a professional or artistic outlet has been limited. Mm-hmm. So being able to do this for my grandmother um, late in her life uh, is really rewarding and it feels it feels like I'm honoring my family in that way. Um, and I hope that she sticks around yeah. so we can get to Broadway. <laughs> right. I know. She'll call me and be like, oh, my back, uh, the cold is seeping into my bones. <laughs> and I'm like, are you going to do what's going on? She goes, I'm going, I am not long for this world. <laughs> I'm like, Grandma, please don't die until we get to New York or something or we get a TV deal. She goes, oh, I think I can hold on I that long. Hold on that long. <laughs> it's so dramatic. I love She's so dramatic. I love it. it. Where do I get it from? Where does my mother get it from? Right. Anyway. You can see. Clearly the source. It's in the family. Yeah. Also, like, the source of, like, uh, your bullshit meter. Yeah. Like, like what you're, you're talking about, what your uncle was saying, too, like, triangulate information yourself. Do your research if it doesn't feel right. But that, I mean, at its essence is just a good bullshit meter. Definitely. Yeah. My family... I think it might be a family trait, but we we can go from like zero to crazy real quick. Mm-hmm. There are some <laughs> hot tempers. Uh, I luckily learned from my parents to like control that. Mm-hmm. And as a means of controlling that is like getting the information first before I like make <laughs> any type of advance or attack. But uh, yeah. But my grandmother is, she's a firecracker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're at about an hour. Yeah. Is there anything... We covered a lot. Yeah, we did. Is there anything we left out? Anything we didn't tie up that you... Any, like, remaining thoughts? Uh, I mean, if you had any more... I can't think of any right now. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah. I just want to make sure we have... (laughs) (laughs) We didn't, like... Oh, no, you know. Yeah, I mean... Okay, some people... Okay, if I can, can I, I, we didn't get to talk about food that much. We didn't talk about food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, so I'll just say this very briefly. When 
I did Dragon Lady at Cafe Nordo in 2017. It had uh, four courses of Filipino food mm. made by local Filipino chef Aaron Versosa. Aaron and his wife Amber have recently opened up their Filipino restaurant called Amazing. Archipelago. And uh, a lot of people are always like, where do you get, like, the best Filipino food in town? And I don't know about the best, but I can tell you it's, like, hot and fresh. And that's at Fooly Market on Beacon Hill. And then when I go to Boston, I'm hopefully, fingers crossed, collaborating with a Filipino chef over there. Mm, amazing. Um, yeah, to build some storytelling around food. Because I think, you know, everybody needs to eat. Mm-hmm. And in my culture and in a lot of other cultures, too, food is such a important component of storytelling and i could probably tape a whole episode around like (laughs) food and (laughs) filipino history and like art making and community building Mm -hmm. but so i'd say that's my last little throw and go eat some delicious food food yeah archipelago yeah and then yeah and then go talk go call your grandma or something (laughs) yeah (laughs) um thank you so much for being here yeah thank you really love talking to you today all right bye bye Sharpest Knives podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Maris Antolin, and partially supported by the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash sharpest knives podcast, or find us on Instagram at sharpest knives podcast. And you can follow along and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sharpest knives podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and your questions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at sharpestknivespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.